Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to The Range on the Believe Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Ralph Irvin, and today we are talking messaging and why saying the right thing in the right setting the right way can completely change how you view any product in the marketplace. Now, how do we do it? Well, let's find out as we are joined by a man who has a firm grasp on media and equipment, and he's made a career out of bringing the two sides together at two of the biggest brands in all of golf. Now he's ventured beyond the course to have an impact to reach his folks throughout their everyday life. I'm pleased to be joined by the CEO of Municipal, that's Harry Arnett, and he's here on the range. Harry, it's great to talk with you again. Ralph, it's been a while, huh? I'm trying to think the last time I saw you had to have been a PGA show ago or so. It, it probably was or sometime in early 2019 for sure. We do talk golf here, so let's get started in that vein. When did golf enter your world? Oh, gosh. You know, I grew up actually in a family of golfers. It just so happens um, my father was not one of them. So his dad was an avid, avid golfer. On my mom's side, have a couple of PGA club professionals. Um, but my dad, for whatever reason, thought golf was boring. He never got into it. So for me, I grew up, I'd play once a year with friends. We'd sneak out onto a golf course somewhere. But really, the golf bug hit me my first job out of college. Um, I was working in uh, at a radio station doing morning radio. So I was in the station at, at three in the morning and it just so happens as luck would have it. Um, one of the, the guys I worked with on that morning show was a, a golfer played college golf at Alabama and got me into the game. And really from that point on, that's kind of when it, it began in my early twenties. So did it hit you hard? I mean, like a lightning bolt. And it was perfect for me. Cause I, I tend to be a little bit more introverted, which I know that probably surprises people that, that know my career, but um, it was perfect for me because it got me outside. I got to be, uh, you know, in the outdoors. I could play by myself if I had to. And it was a game that you can play inside your head all the time. So immediately, Ralph, like <laughs> immediately, I was pretty much a junkie. And this is, you know, 1992. Right. It was hard to get golf stuff. So you, if you weren't subscribing to a magazine, you really were struggling to get your golf fix at that time. Well, and you talked about working in sports radio because you're, you're a big sports fan at heart, and, and it was made sense that you would want to you know, go in that industry, to, at least to, as the start of your career. Yeah, I was, I, when I got out of college, I, my graduation day, I remember thinking, and, and I will never work behind a desk. I'm never going to be working behind a desk. Don't put me behind a desk. I'm going to be coaching or doing something that has a lot more variety to it than sticking behind a desk. And I was fortunate that I had done an internship when I was in college at this radio station. And then obviously when I graduated, they were like, Hey, do you want to stay on and, and, and work here full time and, and having a full-time job? I was like, yes, yeah, sign me up. And it was, mm -hmm. uh, I, I was rich then Ralph, I think I was making $8 an hour. Um, and, uh, I, thought that was more money than I possibly could have imagined ever needing. And yet you made the decision to end up working behind a desk, but you still veered towards sports equipment really from the start. Yeah. I love the passion of it. I loved how, um, I love the, the, how into these categories, you know, in sports that, 
the the fans are. And that, that was something I really wasn't thinking that way, you know, at that age. But later on when I had enough wits about me that if I was going to do something um, that required, you know, 40, 60, 80 hours a week of my time, that I wanted to have something where the people that we were selling to or we were talking to were, you know, intimately engaged in the activity. So no toilet paper for me, no service industry, none of that stuff. I, I really loved the goods, making stuff and then selling, you know, trying to get people to buy it. And what was your first entry into that world? Well, I, so throughout my early career, I was in media and then package media, book publishing in not in sports and was really dying to get into sports. I went to grad school, got out of grad school, and then just luck would have it that my first job in the sports sporting goods realm was with Russell Athletic in Atlanta. This was back in the early, early 2000s. And, um, and I was, I was happy as a clam being around sports, you know, at that time that was in Atlanta. And then um, in a, a short few years after that, I got the opportunity to get into the golf industry, move out to California and we jumped at it. Well, and you talk about the move to California. You did so going to TaylorMade golf in 2007. Yeah, it feels like a million years ago, but um, but that was, I mean, I would, I can't believe how fortunate I was to get the opportunity, not just to work at TaylorMade, who's market leader, a disruptor, complete disruptor, but from outside the golf industry to get inside the golf industry, unfortunately, is really tough. And um, I just, you know, the stars aligned for me and got the opportunity and like i said we we moved from atlanta out to san diego and have never looked back do you remember what your first project was i think and i was thinking about this the other day i was talking to my wife i think that right out of the gate we had some kind of golf ball promotion we had to do and so mm -hmm. i was like you know one week into the job and had to you know cobble together some sort of golf ball promotion this is way back for those of you who uh are well into the category. This is like TP red, TP black. So like 15 years ago. Yeah, so they um, came out in 2006. So maybe it was the LDP technology or something. Could have been, those yeah, lines. right after that uh, low drag <laughs> performance, right? I still yep. remember that. Um, <laughs> hat tip to Dean Snell, wherever you are, Dean. But uh, yeah, so like golf ball promotion, trying to do something. It was like a two for one or seating or something like that. Okay. And, you know, I got thrown into the deep end really quickly. That was the nice thing about TaylorMade. It was sink or swim there. And if you, if you sank, you sank in a hurry. But if you could swim a little bit, then you got a lot of opportunities, and I sure did. At that time, R7 was reigning supreme. Massive technology leaps uh, coming as adjustability and customization were really exploding in the industry. What was it like translating that technology change in a in a world of golf that doesn't like change i mean i i saw the negative resistance to a lot of things when they would do media presentations and i imagine from a marketing perspective that was the challenge was getting people to not be angry or upset at something that was going to help them well a couple of things yeah you, you nailed it and that's that's really where being an outsider helped me because i used to say early on that i was the really the only person at the company for a long period of time that had actually bought anything at golf equipment in recent memory. So I always thought of myself, not just as an outsider, but putting myself into the mind of the consumer. And, um, and when you, when you make, when you're a technology driven company and innovation driven company, 
a lot of times you think that's the game is let's do something that's really innovative that has lots of technology, but that's not really the where rubber hits the road is doing it in a way that's easily explainable to somebody that has to shell out 400, 500 bucks mm -hmm. for whatever it is you're doing. And you're talking about in golf at this, at that time. And even now, um, although a little different then, because this was right before the explosion of launch monitors and data where everything you say really can be quantified, um, you know, immediately by the consumer. Mm -hmm. So we, we were having to try to explain things that, really we're bringing very, very, very kind of sometimes to a consumer might be marginal benefits to, you know, if you're talking about, all right, we're going to, you're going to pick up, you know, three yards of distance. Like, okay, am I really going to pay $500 for three yards? Well, to a lot of people, yeah, all day long, I'll do it right now. As a matter of fact, give me three, give me one yard. I'm going to pay for it. <laughs> so we really were shifting our a lot of our thinking to make it a lot more benefit oriented than it was about the technology and that was also at a time if if you recall and you mentioned it where we were we were rapidly innovating like the investment in r d then was was fairly significant into bringing out new products all the time and you know it could be argued that probably we we were we had the gas pedal down a little bit too much on that, although the results at that time sort of spoke for themselves. When when we were at when I was at TaylorMade, we really the brand really had distinguished itself and pulled away from the other brands that weren't as fast to react. The team at TaylorMade at that time was loaded and deep, and and so you talk about the investment in research and development, but I mean you had marketing, you had management, everybody there was like an all star, and I imagine that in that environment it fostered a lot of personal and corporate growth but it also was like swimming with the sharks it was sink or swim when you first walked in the door but it was sink or swim every day because everybody was coming up with something new you had to bring it you had to bring your best every single day and that was you're right that was really intense and fun at the same time but you knew at any given time that especially as you got more senior within the ranks that you were expected to bring your best every single day and um, like I said, if, if you weren't able to keep up with that pace, it was really, really challenging. And ultimately, Ralph, maybe I wasn't because I left. <laughs> well, I, I would I would say I don't know about that, because if you think about it, you're I mean, well, you're working with Sean Toulon at that time and you ended up working with him again at Callaway. Yeah. So but I mean, it was it started from the top. It really did come from the top and then filtered its way all the way down. Yeah, it did. I mean, that was, you know, Mark King was the CEO then and um, he he really lived that. He lived to with creating a lot of energy within the building and putting all that energy into things that ultimately would be accepted and, and seen by the marketplace. And um, and he really, you know, he 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 had gotten his start as an outside sales rep. So he was used to that being what drove success is you could outwork people you could certainly out out um bring more energy than person and that's something that uh and hustle and that's something that you it doesn't take any skill at all so he 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 really lived that and brought that to um certainly the culture there you talk about being a disruptor you were rather disruptive when he decided to uh go three thousand feet south 
And that literally is all it is, is the crow flies to head the marketing operation at Callaway. Well, a lot of people ask me about that. And what they don't really know is I just was interested in reducing my commute. So I had to reduce it from, I wanted to reduce it from a five minute drive down to a three minute drive. Uh huh. But, no, that, that, that's 40% that savings. Um, <laughs> you know, at that time, you know, going back, that was eight, eight, nine years ago. I was, uh, and you mentioned it at, at, at TaylorMade, we were very much an ensemble, an ensemble cast and Mark with Mark right at the top. And, um, I had also by virtue of being in such a dynamic place that also could be turbulent. Um, I'd had in, in the five and a half years I was there, I'd had 13 different jobs in, in five and a half years. Now, some of that was adding responsibilities, but a lot of those were totally different jobs. And so I was really looking for something that I could, I could sink my teeth into a little bit more and have more of, um, more of a, of a, uh, a consistency with how I could build a team, how I could work with the team. And, um, and when, when Callaway, that was at the time when Chip Brewer had just gotten the CEO um, job at Callaway. He'd come over from Adams. And uh, funnily enough, as small as golf is, I, had, I didn't know anything about, um, about what Callaway was like. I hadn't even ever met Chip, which was kind of strange if you think about how small golf is. Mm-hmm. But we had, uh, Chip and I had a mutual friend who, um, who mentioned to me that with Chip being in California, like you should meet Chip, you're really going to like him. And in my head, I wasn't necessarily thinking, let me go work at Callaway, but I reached out, I reached out to, to Chip and um, Chip is, uh, and you know Chip, I think Ralph pretty well, like Chip is one of the smartest people I've ever been around. He's one of the most ethical people I've been around. And uh, he's just a solid, a solid guy full of integrity. And, you know, immediately after a couple of meetings, I was thinking this, this is somebody that I really can learn from and somebody that I'd like to work with. And then the, and then the challenge of taking the market leader, what had once been the market leader who, who had really brought to the industry a, I mean, Eli Calloway, the ultimate outsider, mm-hmm. brought to it disruptive thinking, changing the trajectory, um, to, to take it from really off of the lead lap to try to turn that brand around with Chip and the team was, was an opportunity that uh, I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't give up. But that, that definitely was, was um, brought with a lot of emotion because, you know, the, the TaylorMade group, that was my family for five and a half years. Right. And the, the thing that that kind of culture and that kind of environment does bring is it brings a lot of t- togetherness a lot of war wounds, a lot of war wounds there mm-hmm. um, in the trenches. And so leaving that was a really tough decision. But um, now looking back on it, it was kind of a no brainer. Walking in the door at Callaway, what was the first thing you tried to accomplish? <laughs> getting, getting the group to believe that we could, that we could be back to being a market leader. I mean, that's, that's really where any of these turnarounds start is you have to get people to believe that it can happen. And because you know, it's not the first time that anybody has come in and, and put together a, a turnaround plan. Um, but, you know, I think from 
from my perspective, and I think Chip would probably say the same thing, is when he was putting together his senior, his senior management team, his senior leadership team, is getting that group to act as one and getting the entire you know, 2,000 people that worked there to believe that it could happen. And um, it had been you know, several years through George Fellows and interim CEOs that they had seen it all. They had seen every, every conceivable plan, every conceivable, um, every conceivable thing drawn up. But um, really what I wanted to bring to the team was, um, was a, a, pragmatic, a pragmatic approach to getting things done, but doing it in a way that was different. And I remember my first meeting there, you know, I inherited this, this marketing group. So I was, I was brought in as, as global CMO. I inherited a marketing group 30, 30 people or so. And I remember sitting in that meeting, uh, Ralph, and saying, look, a lot of people w- look at this team as one of the, one of the, the, the real weaknesses of this, of this company. And the, you know, the marketing team and Callaway's marketing and branding had been much maligned. I mean, you're going back to 2012 and they were launching products with hitting golf balls off of hotels in Vegas and just really doing some things that were kind of far off the map of what I would have considered, you know, authentically performance driven communications. And well, anyway, so I just told the team, I look at this team and I see this can easily be the best, the best marketing group in golf and best marketing group in the world. And I met that. And we, we came in every day trying to live up to that and trying to do things that not only were disruptive, but things that we felt like would be appreciated and different for golfers all over the place. And I think that we were able to do that like pretty quickly. I talk about you entering golf in the golf industry in 2007. And at that point, equipment just evolved. I mean, it just evolved like crazy. But at the same time, there was also evolution going on outside of golf. Social media, the growth of YouTube, the ability to make your own content, And brands could start telling their own stories. And that's really what you did was you just went, you know what? We're just going to start telling our story the way we want to. If nobody else is talking about you, then we're going to talk about ourselves. And I said that for months, you know, we're going to just create our own stories in our own way, direct to consumer. Because if we have to wait around for somebody to come in and tell our story for us, we're going to be waiting a long time. And that was very liberating for the team is to think, wait, we can just start doing our own thing and we can proliferate and invest in our ability to do that and do it in a way that's, that's not only differentiated, but needed by the consumer as the consumer is starting to, to um, curate his own, his or her own learning through the sport. And I, I, I mentioned it a little while ago. I always looked at myself as a consumer. And for we were really wanting to focus on that rabid, just hyper-absorbing um, uh, consum- consum- you know, consumer that's consuming all this information. Because at that time, and still now, there were only a few places that were dedicated to talking about golf all the time. Mm-hmm. And it was so narrow so narrow and and that had been driven by not just what the tour was doing but by what some of the other 
what some of the other golf companies were doing. And their view of what authenticity was in the sport, I felt like was so slim. They were talking to a very tiny, good playing audience, really, you know, uh, um, that were the elite practitioners. And I felt like, you know, that word elite was, was one that really resonated with me is at, at best, it was done in a really, in a really good way. At worst, it was very elitist. Mm -hmm. And I felt like there was this giant group of consumers out there of rabid golfers who wanted a different take on their, the golf experience and not, and doing it in a way that was, you know, authentic and fun and grassroots. And so that was our approach really to get Callaway from being a pretty sleepy old guy's brand to being an avant-garde, innovative, fun, engaging brand. And so from that point, this is, you know, 2012, we really started to investing our time and energy and efforts every single day into delivering that. And in a short period of time, you know, we thought it might take us five years to turn that thing around. And it really only took us about two and a half. So um, we were able to, to do it a lot faster by just creating a more direct, um, a direct relationship with people that were, you know, ripe for, for wanting something different. I built a media setup at UCLA where we went in the athletic department from zero to hundreds of video features in the course of a year. And a lot of people really love it. I mean, you can imagine, I, I know you experienced this. Oh, wow. All this content, this is great. And then suddenly you're like, okay, but you Chip Brewer or you, uh, uh, um, Dr. Alan Hocknell, you need to come and be a part of this. I need to take some of your time now to, to engage this and suddenly like, whoa, 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 I don't have that time. What was it like getting that feedback once people realized that, okay, you're going to do all this awesome content, but you're going to infringe a little bit on their time because that's what's required. I don't know if they are used to it even now. Um, but the, the thing that we tried to lean into on that was rather than have it be um, invasive and rather than have it be what they were used to from being, uh, being in front of the camera, if you will, was we tried to make it be more like a live kind of ESPN news journalism kind of vibe. And that helped mm -hmm. us in a lot of ways. Number one, it, it, it didn't require any real investment into the post-production of these things and so we were we literally were doing things in one take in little bites and then you know running it through minor um edits and off we go and so the 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 nice part about that is if if we were asking alan hognell for example the head of r d at callaway to, to be in some, some things with us, some features. We weren't asking him for three hours of his day, which is kind of what he was used to. If he was gonna appear in a product video or a commercial, that's a big production. We were doing fast, probably what you're used to at UCLA, fast, light, edit light features. So he would come down into our area, we'd, we'd set up the, the production capabilities where he could literally come down shoot something with us for 10 minutes and he was gone. And so um, 
I think early on, people started to appreciate, wow, this is like very efficient. Right. Um, not only that, but I think if I do, if I dare say so, I think our stuff was pretty good. <laughs> so, and it was definitely different because people were so used to things being heavily packaged, heavily edited, heavily produced, um, that when we came out with things that we would have errors in them, we would have, you know, I would, I would, who knows what I would say. Cause it was all, it was all done shot, you know, meant to, sh to, to, to have like a live look at it. Um, people like that. People really, really, really appreciated it. The thing is that if you enter into it from a professional standpoint where you actually think about it and plan it, then you can do it very efficiently with a small staff. I mean, that's what you did is you, you gave it some thought before you took their time. They'd come in, they'd do their small bit, and then you could execute it out because you had th treated it like it is a professional project, even if it's just going to be done in an efficient manner. And that was, that. that's exactly right. And in, in our, a few years in, we ended up hiring Jeff Newbarth, who came over from the Golf Channel, and his background was live sports. So he brought a lot of the expertise and professionalism mm -hmm. on how do you plan to shoot something that is meant to be experienced as like a live broadcast. And, and even um, in a lot of cases, we did things that were live. We did live shows, we did live features. We, um, back in 2014, we were doing things that the consumer would watch us doing live with athletes, with, with people within the company. And really what we were doing was we were, we were creating um, an expertise on how to do that. So then when, when Jeff came aboard in, uh, in 2015, um, he really brought that level of expertise to us to be able to really elevate our game on how we could, we could really act like a, a news organization. And we're, we were shooting marketing content literally every day and consumers out there would get engagement with Callaway every single day. And that was very, very different from what anybody else was doing in the space. You know, people would, people really looked at social media at that time as just, Oh, it's just an extension of our advertising plan. And we didn't look at it that way at all. We looked at it as a daily engagement with our most important people who are our biggest fans. Looking back now as your time in golf, was there a demonstrable difference between TaylorMade and Callaway? And if there is one or two things that really separated the environment that was between the two? Um, they couldn't have been more different. I mean, I think Callaway, uh, Callaway was definitely a, uh, uh, well, I'll put it this way. If TaylorMade made most decisions based on gut and instinct. Callaway was very much more data thought driven about decision making. So you can, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting either is better than the other, mm -hmm. but, um, but you can see how TaylorMade would have been faster to react to things based on instinct and gut where Callaway would have been a little slower because of wanting to adhere more to data. And I think what Chip brought when he got there was he sort of he sort of blew apart a lot of that slow thinking and um, methodical approach 
to be a lot more aggressive and risk-taking about certain things that we wanted to do in terms of turning the brand around. I mean, I just we just talked about transforming marketing into being a news organization. And you know, you don't do that by looking at data. You do that by trusting your gut and getting after it. And we we wanted to take a little bit of what was virtuous about the tailor-made approach, but applying it into a a big machine like Callaway had. And the nice thing about Callaway, I remember when I first got there was, um, and I'm I'm certainly no no Notre Dame fan, sports fan, but I I thought about it the same way that whoever gets the head job at Notre Dame football must feel when they walk in is like, how does this team ever lose? They had their own TV network, NBC. Mm-hmm. They had the best facilities on the planet Earth. They had the most engaged alumni base of anyone. How do you ever lose? You you can make your own schedule. You're independent. You're not beholden to any conference crap. And I felt the same way about Callaway is they had so much cool stuff they had invested over the years that it really was just a matter of focusing, um, focusing what they were already doing in a, in a, um, in a, you know, a much more effective way. And, but yeah, I mean, the two cultures could not have been more different. And I'm sure, I'm sure some of that has changed a lot with, um, you know, since, since Mark has, has moved on and, and David Abelis has taken over. I'm sure that, I'm sure that a lot of that has changed, but, um, but it was, it was a little bit of culture shock coming in. I mean, just specifically Cali is a very quiet place. TaylorMade was full of energy, always something going on. Cali is very quiet. It was like walking into, uh, this is, you know, this is 10 years, almost 10 years ago. It's like walking into a bank branch or something. So we had, we had some work to do to get people more enlivened, which I think we did pretty quickly. And Chip certainly, you know, believes in that too. Now you went from Callaway to an entirely new venture, creating the municipal brand. Now, is that something that evolved after your departure or something you were thinking about for some time and decided, you know what, I'm just going to go for it and see if I can make it happen. Kind of definitely it has evolved since I left, but um, it was, I would say the, the idea for what municipal is and where it's going has been one that I've been wrestling with for a while. And just as a lot of the same themes that I mentioned in golf, um, back when I, you know, when I worked in golf were, were things that I would think a lot about, about what was going on in, with consumers, what was going on culturally, what were these, what were trend vectors that were affecting people. And, um, I was really interested in thinking more broadly about how a brand could engage with people in ways that were not transactional and in ways that were, could really help people, um, improve their lives beyond just consuming goods. And so that's a, you know, a big abstraction, but I always, I always thought about that even in my Callaway experience too, of how can we, how can we really elevate the golf experience by virtue of Callaway being in it? And I started to think a lot about outside of golf, um, even though, you know, you're not going to find anyone that loves the game more than I do and is more passionate about it. 
I just felt like there was a bigger platform that existed to be able to help more people than just golfers. And by, so that, that's what had been in my head for a while, Ralph, mm-hmm. you know, 10 years, even really 10, 15 years thinking about that subject. And I was fortunate that I got to meet Mark Wahlberg about 10 years ago. At the same time, he was going through some of the, that same evolution in his thinking about how he wanted to diversify um, his activities beyond just being in movies and entertainment. And he had already started to invest and create things in the health and wellness sector. And so we would, we would talk about that when I would, I would see him, which is, you know, a couple times a year, always over golf. And uh, he was a huge fan of Callaway, so we, we bonded over that. And really within the last couple of years, we started talking about whether, what the brand opportunity could be um, to, to really piece together some of those same things that we were talking about for the last 20 minutes of, of content and media and engagement and really providing a great deal of utility, but also wrapped in a healthy degree of inspiration to get people off their asses to start pursuing um, reaching their full potential as, as husbands, as fathers, as brothers, as friends, as wives, um, as daughters, as really what's that journey look like? And Mark was living that lifestyle. He was living it. And so we started talking about how do we bring that as a philosophy in a branded experience to people to, to have people really inspired to go, you know, to go pursue um, becoming the best versions of themselves. Again, those are all abstractions. And ultimately what we landed on was this, what municipal is, which, you know, for now we're making the best um, sport utility gear, which is the most comfortable, stylish, versatile versions of the things you wear all the time, starting at the gym. So, you know, you cannot become the best version of yourself if you're not healthy. So, and you're, you're talking about Mark, Mark's in the gym every morning at 4am. How do I know it? Cause I just look on Instagram cause I'm not up at 4am in the gym, but, um, but it starts with a commitment to a healthy lifestyle and then getting after it. And so, you know, we're just now beginning our journey. We just launched the brand in July, uh, officially. So, you know, the shop opened in July, July 15th, municipal.com. And we're just now starting to put together some of those pieces that I just talked about because right in the middle of our planning, the um, pandemic hit our shores as well as our supply chain. So we, we were, we've been a little, uh, we, we've really challenged ourselves to be a lot more, um, a lot more flexible than probably we thought with our plans. But um, so our idea when, when I, my last day at Callaway golf was August 30th, 2019. I started my first day at Municipal was August 31st, 2019. And I would say the direction that we've gone has not changed much. We've always headed towards that that notion of we want to inspire a global movement of people to reach their full potential. The way that we've gone about has changed quite a bit as probably most startups are. But um, 
totally different experience going from, you know, Callaway Golf to, to starting something from scratch. We had nothing. We had no office space. We had no letterhead. We had nothing. So creating everything from scratch has really been um, quite an experience. You're able to use the experience from Callaway to see what can we do with, through social media to really spread the brand and, and reach the public. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the things that are, there's a lot of similarities of what, what we want to do based on what we were, you know, wanting to accomplish at Callaway and what they're still doing there. The, the difference being, um, you know, Callaway had 100% brand awareness in its category. You're not going to run into anyone in golf that's, that doesn't know the Callaway brand. So we, we had that benefit at Callaway. We're municipal. We're starting from scratch. So we're trying to grow awareness in a, um, in a category, as I mentioned, that's much, much bigger with a lot more competitors. And so it's, uh, you know, that part is a significant challenge, certainly as we get cranked up here. I have to ask, how is your golf game? My golf game has definitely taken a, uh, a backseat to trying to build this business. <laughs> so, but the funny part is I'm now just like everyone else, you know, like, um, being in golf, one of the great things is we get the opportunity to play a lot and, you know, definitely more than, than an average person. But, um, so I'm having to pick my battles on when I, when I get to play, but, uh, I haven't played a lot. So I'm now, my golf experience is a lot like everyone else. I just, I experience in the palm of my hand, looking at Instagram and, and social. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm really enjoying that part of it, of, of being a fan. And I now, since I know so many people in the industry, I'm just like everyone else calling up my friends and like, tell me a little bit about this technology. What is that? You know? And, uh, and even in some cases I'm like, now is this one that I should be interested in or should I, is this not really for me? And you know, especially like Callaway products. I'll, Hey, is this something that I need or is this not really for me? You know? So um, that part's been fun, but I'm eager to, I'm eager to get back out. I, I definitely have the bug and the itch to, to start playing a lot. Just when you're a civilian outside of the golf industry, the opportunity, you have to create your opportunities, which is, uh, has been a shift for me that I haven't quite mastered. Now we always wrap up our talks here on the range by going into the Wayback machine. So excluding your current line at municipal, tell me one club that you've loved, still love, think back on it fondly, maybe a product launch that gives you warm feelings inside, anything of that nature from your time in the golf industry that maybe jumps out at you. Well, my favorite club by far are Apex Irons. And, um, and that was such an important product for the turnaround of Callaway because we, we really, so it has an emotional attachment to me. We really wanted to get back to being the number one iron company in golf. We'd lost that to TaylorMade for a few years. And we wanted a product that was universally looked at as premium, aspirational, and could fit a lot of players. And so that was the, um, the relaunch of Apex, I think it was 2013 or 14. And around that same time um, was when we brought back Big Bertha. So the relaunch of Big Bertha in 2014 was also like so fun. Um, and, you know, a lot of, there were so many cool things, our, my time at Callaway that we did from 
launching Chrome Soft, and that that definitely changed the trajectory of not just Callaway within the golf industry or the golf ball category, but it really fundamentally changed the category quite a bit. And um, and then most recently, the the relaunch of or the launch of the Epic Driver franchise that took Callaway to being the number one woods company in golf, which nobody thought that we would be able to do that. Um, so if I was going to put together like my dream bag, that would, that would probably be it. And I should also put in there, um, cause it's still in my bag today. I mean, how could I not have a two ball putter in my bag? So, you know, that's, that's kind of my dream bag. And, uh, but I'm, I'm kind of, I bet I'm like you though, Ralph. I did, when I look at, at what's in my bag, now or I look at the the clubs that are in my office or in my garage I don't ever really look at them as the cold inanimate objects that they are I I think of the stories and I think of the people behind them and or even how I got them you know whether it's a wedge stamp that Roger Cleveland gave me you know or or a cool design of something that Anthony Toronto does, you know, cool stuff that Callaway gave me or, or Dave Neville brought me some, you know, dark finished rogue irons with a cool blue stamping on them or something, you know, and I keep those things because they have, they have, uh, they have some emotional value to me. So every, as you were kind of thinking, every, every club tells a story. But for me, it's never really about how good I played when I had them, unfortunately. <laughs> now, Harry, it was great having you on the range. You're definitely one of the people that I had in mind when I launched this show. Your insight into the industry and your experience with two of the game's biggest brands is immeasurable. So thank you for joining us here on the range. Thanks, Ralph. Good seeing you again. That is Harry Arnett, the CEO at Municipal and a real insider through recent years of the golf industry. If you ever saw him on the Callaway media broadcast, you may wonder, I can tell you, yeah, he's absolutely as fun and cool a guy as there is in the world of golf. And he has a great, unique brand that is coupling casual style with some premium constructions and is definitely worth a look. He is at the core a marketer, but using that understanding of how to reach consumers, he's been able to build up an amazing career. Before we go, I'm sure you noticed that professional golf's most disruptive player dominated the field in winning the U.S. Open at Wingfoot by six shots. Of course, Twitter was obsessive. It's the wrong way to play golf. Wingfoot was marginalized and simplified. This is the doom and gloom of golf's future, and so on. Well, guess what, folks? Here's a reality check you all need to hear. Every single player in the U.S. Open, except two, finished over par, and only the champion, Bryson DeChambeau was under par. Does that sound like an easy course setup to you? No. DeChambeau hit 23 of 56 fairways for the tournament, the lowest number for an open champion in recent memory, maybe ever. But that was tied for 26th overall, far from the bottom of the field. The reality is that everyone expected fairways to be at a premium, and DeChambeau came in with a game plan and executed it to outpace the field. But let's be real. The uproar and the outrage is not because of the score, but because it was Bryson DeChambeau that was doing it. We've talked in many episodes of the range about the resistance to new technology and improvements that make it more fun for everyone to play golf. And a lot of time, this resistance is driven by the golf media. You see, innovation means that they need to learn more. And it is a reminder that no matter how long you've been in or around the game, change will happen 
and inevitably, it'll expose what you do and you do not know. But the anger this week was also about the fact that the so-called experts were excited to mock all the pros complaining about the brutal conditions in New York. But that never happened. The players took their lumps and they played on. 11 players hit 50% of fairways for the week, but nary a peep was heard. Yet people were outraged because their predictions were wrong. That's it, plain and simple. And they in turn had to complain about the course, the style, the loss of their game. What Bryson DeChambeau showed us all is that golf is an individual game and we should all find our path to success. He did it on the biggest stage. We should all be so fortunate, no matter our level of play. If you want to know more about golf equipment, subscribe to us on YouTube at The Golf Spotlight. For the latest on the range, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Again, it's The Golf Spotlight, as we welcome your comments there anytime. You've listened this far, so subscribe to The Range on iTunes or follow us on Spotify or iHeart, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We have new shows dropping every Wednesday. Now that'll do it for this episode of The Range, so let's hit the course and don't be shy about sharing your great time on social media. Make your friends jealous. And we'll talk to you next time, right here on The Range. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.